Jane Hertig, welcome to the Islam Unraveled Anti-Racist Podcast. And you as the Director of Resilience BC, who's graciously uh, supported our work with Islam Unraveled and us being the uh, the faith-based community convener with Resilience BC. So we commend you for your work. And how we normally start our conversations, we'd like to know about the person and uh, just really how you arrived to uh, being involved in social justice and, and anti-racism at, at levels. So from our personal journey, how did you come to this work? I know it's it's uh, many kind of twists and turns, but it would be grateful for us to, to understand uh, how you got to here. Okay. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be on the Islam Unraveled podcast. Uh, it's a great honor and a really great opportunity opportunity to be able to talk about the Resilience BC Anti-Racism Network and uh, the role of the conveners, which um, Islam and Ravel has become uh, the faith-based convener for Resilience BC. Uh, it's really uh, a really fantastic opportunity for the network members to be able to uh, join forces with these conveners to be able to reach out deeper into communities to um, help the public, help community members to address racism and hate. So uh, thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, so me personally, I'm, um, I'm a white settler woman that uh, is from Treaty 6 territory, which is now called uh, Alberta and Edmonton specifically. Uh, is where I was born and I now live uh, um, on the uh, territory of the Lekwungen speaking people, the Songhees and the Squamalt nations. And it's a great honor to be living in this beautiful land as an uninvited guest. Uh, and my journey to where I am today is um, I think obviously with most people begins with my parents who were my on my father's side, his Father was a Romanian Jew, and the, his, mo his mother was from Odessa, and uh, they met in Winnipeg and moved um, to Edmonton, where my father was born. Um, and he grew up uh, to be a um, bookseller and a great reader and a great learner, and um, became very proud uh, Canadian and um, really a champion for citizens to be participating and engaging in their own communities and uh, fighting and working to make their communities a better place, more just uh, society. Uh, and my mother, um, her parents were from uh, um, Ontario and um, they, she uh, and my dad opened up a bookstore in Edmonton in the 60s, and it was the first bookstore in Edmonton. And um, they both are great readers, as I mentioned, and uh, love of learning, pass that on to my sisters and I, I have three sisters. And um, again, instilled this uh, responsibility that we have um, with the privilege that we had uh, um, living in a middle-class neighborhood, um, and um, having all the opportunities of the world in front of us um, that, that was really up to us to be using those that privilege to be um, making change. So that had a great influence on me. And um, I've had a really interesting career working in the community, 
um, helping people to be engaged in politics and making decisions about how they're being represented, uh, working with volunteers at a medical facility, um, lots of really fantastic opportunities to be um, listening and learning and helping people to uh, engage in what their passion is uh, for them, for these particular people to, to be working in their communities. And were there any books uh, that that influenced you or, or, or philosophies maybe from your father and your, your family being readers and just really understanding the greater world through through the adventure of, of different worlds and books can take us down? Were there books that that spoke to you that 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 influenced kind of even some of your ideas that you use today? I think um, the the we, we were when we were little we were in the bookstore a lot so um just to, i think having access to all the different types of books that there are and um, being able to appreciate the value that of what you're you're getting from that learning um but i think that uh, probably the work of my dad in in the 80s uh, through a very generous grant from the um, Alberta government was able to publish the Canadian Encyclopedia. Uh, and that was, you know, long before we had the internet. And um, my dad was, you know, conscious of the fact that encyclopedias that we had in our homes and in our libraries were printed in the United States. And so maybe they had snippets of information, maybe accurate about Canada. Um, but so this feat of putting together the Canadian Encyclopedia was a really great accomplishment. So it was um, the idea of being able to have a vision. It was the same thing with opening up the first bookstore, having a vision of what, what's needed, understanding what the public are looking for and what's needed to be um, helping to inform, have an informed citizenry um, and putting those, that, those ideas into, into practice and actually being able to create the encyclopedia, which then through the Alberta government was a gift to, I think every library in Canada, I believe was as part of their centennial uh, anniversary. And, and this was the pre-Google. This was- uh, This definitely like pre-Google. We may have even had a copy. Uh, we, we actually, we grew up uh, across the border in Fort St. John, uh, which is not far from Edmonton. Right. And very, very cold in the winter. Very, very cold. That's right. Yeah. And, and even just the, the historical aspect of, of your family uh, coming uh, from Europe and, uh, and uh, it was it in the context of, of, because of uh, World War II and, and, and fascism and communism and, and pogroms and, and persecution, was that part of the, the impetus for the family to come to Canada? Um, coming, so this was, I should be able to tell you the date, but it's definitely pre, maybe even pre-World War I. I don't have those exact dates, sorry. Um, oh, but. Uh, I think the understanding of the um, experience of um, anti-Semitism and the impact of that on our, our community, um, I think that was really was clear. Um, it was an interesting uh, family that I grew up in. It wasn't, we, we weren't, uh, we were more culturally Jewish. Uh, we shared holidays with my mother's family, who was not Jewish, and we shared, and we would experience um, Jewish holidays with my dad's family, and so we had a, got to see an eye on both 
both sides of the coin, um, but definitely growing up to understand um, the impact of anti-Semitism was, um, I mean, even uh, my, as we were uh, growing up, there was anti-Semitism in uh, Alberta. My uncle was the first Jewish person to attend U of A medical school and um, the golf course that my dad uh, was a member and my dad was a member had uh, earlier had a, a no Jewish people allowed rule and so it's a very um, it's something that's you know was still very fresh and not not that hidden yeah and 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 I think you know one of the learnings um, is one thing they can't take away from us is our education and mm -hmm. our knowledge and and right. and part of those learnings like uh, because experiencing that, and I think when somebody experiences discrimination and grows up with that and sees the impact of discrimination uh, for myself, I'm speaking for myself, when, when I've seen it in my life, being from uh, originally from Pakistan, and my great-grandfather came in India before Pakistan existed, and so being a person of color and a uh, different religion, uh, the historical racism, uh, the families endured, or, and to a degree, there's the intersection of race and religion, uh, where, where there's a, a multiple levels of discrimination. So to feel it and understand it, and then have compassion for others that experience that. And, and so I think probably why both of us are here today is because through our life learnings, we're like, well, what can we do meaningfully for, for other people, not just ourselves and our communities, but for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so in your journey, uh, political and civic engagement strategies. So this is kind of your wheelhouse. So, so political and civic engagement strategies, how did these ideologies and these kind of understandings come in your work uh, to, re to reflect uh, uh, the work that you did in Canada, but also you have many years of international uh, development work in the Middle East, North and West Africa, and the Caribbean. So I think what you did very wisely and consciously or unconsciously going to other countries and other continents to get a perspective on 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 other countries and their systems and, and their cultures and their religions and to inform where we are in our Canadian context. So maybe mm -hmm. let's talk about I, unpacking all of that. Um, so I, I uh, as I mentioned, it was, uh, I think because of my white privilege, I had a lot of opportunity uh, in front of me when I finished university and um, was able to have opportunities to be working uh, in politics, um, working doing uh, campaign organizing, working in Parliament Hill, learning about how government works. I worked in the legislative buildings in British Columbia, um, understanding how decisions are made uh, and how the public is engaged in, in those, that decision-making process, uh, communicating with voters and uh, you know, to make sure that people are understanding what's happening. And um, then also that piece of helping people be politically involved and be politically engaged, which was uh, for me the most fulfilling part of that work in politics was being able to see volunteers coming out and supporting the people that they believed would be the best representatives for them. And uh, having, uh, being able to make sure people had the, the training and the skills they needed in order to be doing their tasks and well so that they wanted to continue to come back and do that work and understanding the impact that they were having in their communities 
by uh, helping to get other people's other people engaged in uh, that that important process of deciding who's representing us in um, in our government uh, or in our our legislative bodies. Um, then I, I went on and was doing specifically working with volunteers in the um, at the BC Cancer Agency for five years, which was a really rewarding job. Um, and I found that again, it's being able to give people the opportunity to do that kind of work, to be giving back to their communities. And, that, and that's a feeling that is, um, it makes you feel closer and, and care more about what's happening in your community. And it helps you to see what, what changes need to happen and helps you to be more, more engaged. And it also makes people feel good about themselves when they can give their time um, and are have the tools to be doing it well and to feel confident and um, to be committed to that because they they know that they're doing a good job. So it was a really, really amazing work um, working with volunteers. I was really, really honored to be able to do that. And in, in civic and political engagement, and I, I think realizing that if we are meaningfully wanting to help our communities, uh, the decision makers, the policy makers, the, the lawmakers, and uh, within municipal, provincial, and federal government, mm -hmm. uh, that's the place to have the voices heard and have mm -hmm. all voices and diverse voices heard so that meaningful uh, laws and meaningful legislation can be implemented reflecting the needs of the community. Mm -hmm. But uh, those in government don't know unless uh, people, communities are engaged with them yeah, all throughout the process. All uh, throughout the process. Yeah. And the most important thing is when that voter goes to the polling station to select who they want to represent them to make sure that that voter is informed and is making an informed decision. And today with the social media and the fake news, and uh, there's so many different ways that uh, that really making a good decision can be blocked um, is it makes it even more important for people to be getting involved and um, for the voters to have an opportunity to be hearing about what is it that their uh, their options are what what is the vision that the different candidates have what are their solutions that they're putting forward um, so really informed educated voters is um, is critical and before we get into resiliency BC and and the, the story of that the origin story and and where we are today I, I really did want to understand your work in the Middle East and uh, in in Haiti and in 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 Africa uh, just to understand what, what compelled you or what brought you to these countries and 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 what were the lessons learned so I know we let's start with the Middle East and then we can go to the other okay. countries um, so a, a million lessons learned. I, I went into the work really not having uh, any any clear idea of what it is I was getting into. Um, it, what took me down that path was the fact that I had the political these political experiences and um, knowledge of how government works and the organization I was working for does democracy work works in uh, countries that have transitioning democracies. Um, and so that my, my um, experience with political parties and legislatures and volunteers and civil society was the sort of package of, of skills that they were looking for. So again, very, very um, 
great opportunity and uh, was really honored to, to be able to do this work. So, uh, but as I said, not really super prepared. Um, my first, the first country that I went to was Mauritania, which is on the west coast of Africa, below Morocco. And it is um, one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, the, where the Sahara Desert meets the Atlantic Ocean. And um, it was uh, an incredible learning experience for me. And uh, I think it's where I really learned uh, to be able to really listen to people and um, to hold back my, again, my white privilege going in to a country uh, with some sort of expectation that I have something to offer um, was really wrong. And uh, so I needed to, to be able to sit back and listen and um, be able to hear, learn about the society and learn about the culture and be able to understand what, what are the challenges that, that um, they're facing and what do they see as the solutions? Um, and then all I would have to offer is, well, this is, this is what we did and maybe there's a way to uh, adapt that as a strategy for what you want to do, for what you want to accomplish. So uh, as we know, and I, I think there's a, uh, uh, it's a generalization or this kind of thought process that one country or one race or one religion, they're all the same. And, and by going to Mauritania, which is very diverse, I, I do know Muslims are a very large percentage of that population, mm -hmm. yet there's tribal issues, cultural issues, regional issues, mm -hmm. uh, socioeconomic issues. So there's multi-level uh, kind of layers of each of these countries that, that we're dealing with that are very complex. And, uh, and by going in, as you said, to, to tell uh, just to, because it's hard to, uh, teach without understanding and listening, and and uh, and obviously there there's lessons that can be learned from uh, the work that you bring to the table. But it's it's also a two way street. There's lessons, like you said, a million lessons that that you are getting to inform even the work that you're doing in Canada based on 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 understandings and listenings of these diverse communities. And so, Mortina being uh, culturally and uh, and also. Uh, Islamically, a, a significant uh, uh, kind of change from Canada. How is that adjustment with cultural and religious uh, norms there that that are not common here in Canada? Well, it was uh, uh, incredible, I, and I was just so honored to be working. That uh, was the team that uh, there was an office there where um, where I worked with a team of amazing young people. Uh, who had such patience with me and my, first of all, my, my poor French, because uh, I was working en Francais, and um, also just with the fact that I wasn't, and I didn't know the culture, and I didn't know um, the society and the tradition, so they taught me what I needed to know with great patience, um, and I was, I am forever grateful, and uh, to the fact that they helped me um, to be able to do what I was was going to be doing with them. So the uh, it was there was uh, so many things and so many other people uh, that came and talked to me and met with me and um, on a regular basis to help me understand what was happening around us. Uh, there was a coup while I was there, and so there was a, there was a lot happening. Uh, the political situation there was shifting 
quickly. Um, after 2007, they elected their first president uh, since um, the end of the colonial reign. Uh, and that, so that was a really challenging opportunity for making some change happen. And specifically, um, I, was, I was there to support uh, human rights organizations who were wanting to put in place a truth and reconciliation process to deal with human rights that had been human rights abuses that had taken place in the 80s and 90s. So that was- um, by, by France, by France. No, actually it was, um, so that's after the French left in the 60s. Um, this was with uh, the, there was a- Internally. Taya, I think was his name. Yeah, the president who had been, was there for I think 30 years was ruling. And there was a um, population, the population is divided into three. Um, white Moors and Black Moors and Afro-Mauritanians. Afro um, so they were ex they expelled the Afro-Mauritanian population and um, kicked them out of their jobs as judges or teachers or lawyers and imprisoned and tortured. And there was a whole series of human rights abuses that took place in the 80s and 90s. So this was uh, something that was to be a promise by the president who was elected would be addressed there'd be a, um, some sort of human rights um, reconciliation for those events. And the Human Rights Commission there was taking this on. And so I was, I, I was uh, with, with none of my expertise in that area at all, um, came to just to be able to help facilitate a decision on um, what type of uh, truth and reconciliation process they wanted. So we had brought people in from all over the world to show different models of how this could work and, um, and help them come to a conclusion on what they wanted. And then just after they made their decision, there was a coup and uh, the president was gone and there was another military leader and put himself in place. And uh, I believe he's still there today. And, and trying to restart it and yeah no it, it is a terribly frustrating i'm sure and uh, and and just that complex nuance of three unique identifiable groups uh, that identify by culture color skin and and religion and and really seeing how the interplay and how one side can demonize another to a degree to try and expel them so one thing we've learned from history is we haven't learned anything from history and i don't know who who quoted this but uh, history tends to rhyme uh in in terms of this type of oh this one group is bad that one group is bad and everyone's pointing fingers at each other and then not just pointing fingers then eventually pointing weapons at each other mm -hmm. so so now now you that was like you were you were thrown into the deep end of, of a very complex uh kind of environment and in, in culture and country set different from canada and now leaving mauritania where was your next destination so then i went to iraq, iraq. Uh, now you're going really into some, some heavy duty territory yeah yeah very different dynamic um so complex the the politics of iraq uh tribal the tribalism there that there's so many different um people that are involved and um outside influence in the country um it's a, it was uh really it is and it continues to be a challenging place but all with all of that um complexity comes an amazing environment to be in and the the people um 
that so maybe it's up at the political level where you've got where you've got all the friction and tension and um, instigating the violence with the people that um, I was engaging with that I was working with and uh, meeting on a daily basis were all uh, really amazing people with um, such incredible histories and um, their journey to be able to um, be wanting to make, make wanting to make change in their country uh, and engage in the democratic process uh, was inspiring. And uh, the women that I worked with there, uh, I learned so much, um, learned so much about uh, Islam and about the, the, how much strength the women got from, from being religious. And um, I learned a lot uh, because um, my, I didn't know that much about, about Islam before I, I moved uh, overseas. And um, then I found, uh, um, yeah, I just found that uh, it just is a really an amazing place. I had an opportunity to see just a little bit. I lived for the most time, most of the time on a compound. Uh, but one, one of the compounds we had in Baghdad was on the Tigris River um, towards the end of the time that I was there. And just that was, just felt really special and magical because although it's not in good shape right now, um, but it still is such a historical body of water and the birds that were uh, coming by, it was just really an amazing place. All in, in that's surrounded and at that time surrounded by so much violence and so much um, heartbreak for the staff that I worked with and um, for the public, for the citizens of Iraq. And historically, that is the cradle of civilization, Babylon, and, uh, and the Tigris and the Euphrates, like historically for thousands of years, so much rich history and sadly a lot of bloodshed over the centuries and millennium. It, 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 uh, it, even today. And so uh, now there's, you know, one thing about racism and discrimination. Uh, so there's within religions, the sectarian issues, uh, Sunni, Shia, and then other branches of Sunni and Shia. And uh, so although within the context where a lot of people think of Islam as, okay, they're all like that. But even within Islam, as you can see, and even Judaism and Christianity, there's so many different, different, unique uh, perspectives that don't agree with the other perspective, yet everyone tends to say, well, all Christians are like this, all Jewish people are like that, all Muslims are like that. But I'm sure in your experience, now you understood how uniquely uh, different the perception of each sectarian aspect of, at least in the Islamic context, especially in Iraq, was 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 polarizing and dealing with that. Although the a lot of elements of the faith are the same, but uh, the the divide and rule kind of issue where where people are pitted against each other with identifiable belief differences and willing to kill each other for that. And so propaganda plays its part on on both sides. That that is one thing. And then there's one side that has more money and weapons that that tends to generally win. Um, but these complex issues by, by seeing it, and obviously in Canada, uh, thankfully we live in a country where coups and violent kind of attacks against groups uh, doesn't happen uh, like it does in Iraq, which, uh, which again, they're still dealing with the, the, the aftermath of two wars and, uh, and civil war and ISIS and, and what have you. And so within this complexity and the perspective, um, 
what, what was the key learnings that you got, especially in Iraq? Because it, it is such a, it, it actually probably triggered the creation of ISIS, the destruction of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, also the refugee crisis, uh, starting with the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War, the refugee crisis, at least from the Middle East, uh, 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 a lot of that emanated from, from those wars. So what were the learnings based on kind of going in, let's just say, you know, with a certain perspective and how your perspective changed uh, based on your experience? Um, well, I think that the, <laughs> the, the finding and understanding and the answers to get out of those uh, very complex, difficult situations um, is, I, I think, something that I learned is just not an easy <laughs> easy thing uh, to do. And so we may sit over here in Canada and read about it or listen to it on the radio about what's going on. And, uh, you know, well, why, why can't those people just get it together? Um, that that's just not, um, you know, that these are really complex historical problems that need to be resolved. And from, again, the people that I came in contact with, um, the people that were interested in, making change, uh, working for uh, building civil society organizations to be able to get youth engaged in their communities. Or um, we had a really amazing program where we um, had uh, debate clubs set up in some high schools around the country uh, and teaching the teachers um, how how to be listening better because that's the big skill in debate is to be able to listen to what your opponent's saying and then to be able to respond to what they're saying uh, with your argument. And so those, um, uh, those people that we, that, that we ha- had an opportunity to be working with were so committed to finding a solution and understanding that um, only by everybody working together that they would be able to find a way out and they had even though these problems are so complex and historical believing that there was a way out of it um, and that's obviously is you can't uh, you're not going to find a solution if you don't believe that it's possible so admiring the the people that had that strength and commitment to their country and um, although I think there was still a lot of a, a lot of fear that uh, the, the route out piece was a long ways away, which in fact it was. This is, I was there 2009 to 2011. So that's a long time ago. That's that, before that's ISIS. A very dangerous time as well, still. Even yeah. At the- yeah. So um, just, I think that learning that um, the the strength, I, I mean, resiliency, I think that is a word here uh, of people to be able to be living through those uh, continuously living through these nightmares of violence and then still being able to get up and say let's let's fix this this isn't overwhelming odds of of, of brutality and oppression in multiple forms and one thing in my in my travels i found in muslim countries is the hospitality i don't know if you got a sense of that compared to even canada there's just this really welcoming of guests from uh, especially from countries like canada and and even other countries but i think a, a lot of folks that haven't traveled they may not understand that level of hospitality how did that hospitality that you experienced in these countries how did that 
change your perspective as well in terms of your understanding of hospitality? Well, I just, um, the Mauritania more so because in Iraq, we were living on a compound. Yeah. Um, the, although I did have lots of opportunity to eat delicious Iraqi food that um, our colleagues would bring in uh, from their homes, the um, amazing dalma, for example, uh, that I would, um, I'll go back one day for had to have some real dalma again. Um, and so in Mauritania and in Morocco, really, I, I had more opportunity to be experiencing uh, people inviting you to their homes or um, often uh, in, um, in uh, Mauritania, we'd be traveling throughout the country and people would invite us to meals under these beautiful tents um, in, out in the desert and be eating these communal from these beautiful dishes of couscous and vegetables and um, lamb or goat and just the most amazing meals ever. And people just so gracious. So um, maybe somebody, a family that maybe doesn't have a lot still offering to invite us to come and sit with them and eat and uh, share stories. It was just really open and warm. And, um, and so made me always feel so comfortable when I was the outsider and um, was really uh, learning. Again, it was just my, my time to be listening and learning and, and uh, to be able to get, um, to feel like I was understanding where I was. Yeah, it was really amazing people everywhere I was. And, and how we are in Canada is we have a mosaic of multiple cultures, but when we go to these countries that have um, hundreds or thousands of years of history, tradition, culture, family, tribalism, uh, that's something that's intrinsic to the people of, as you said, a communal way of eating from the same plate, sitting on the ground, sitting with the entire family, all the generations together, which uh, in Canada is maybe not as common as that. But again, another perspective and a completely different way of life that that maybe in Canada or the West, we, we, we don't necessarily have. Now, you talk about Morocco. And, uh, and so was that the next journey was, was well, in I went after uh, Iraq, I went to Haiti, I was in Haiti for two years. Um, that was another incredible experience. Um, the uh, so the history there is, is um, as you probably know, it was the first slave nation to uh, kick out uh, their masters and uh, de declare independence. Uh, and the rest of the colonial countries around them that had, that, that had slave labor um, were very nervous uh, that Haiti might be a bad example to their slaves and they might want to rise up in the United States or in other uh, countries in the in the region. Um, so they did everything they could to keep Haiti down and to stop them from being the economic success that they would have been because it was a very rich country, uh, which is why the French had wanted to stay there. Uh, and it was it, geographically, it's a uh, strategic spot in the in the hemisphere. And so it was a really uh, um, important, I think, for uh, other countries outside to not allow that country to thrive. And today it still suffers from that, um, you know, failed launch on uh, when they first declared independence. So it, literally to this day, the country is in uh, a terrible, terrible shape. 
and it was uh, all for everywhere where I worked. Um, you know, there was there were lots of problems, lots of very complex problems. But for when in Haiti, it felt um, it, that path out. It felt really difficult to really understand how how to get there. The country um, has uh, so many layers of uh, problems that that um, are so difficult to address, and yet. Uh, the people that I met there and the, pop, the, the people I worked with there, my colleagues, all incredible people, incredibly generous, uh, again, spending so much time and patience with me um, and teaching me uh, what I needed to know. And um, it was just uh, the food, amazing food and the, the art and the culture, uh, unique uh, to anywhere in the world. And it was so it was a really amazing opportunity. Again, spending a lot of time listening and understanding and uh, sharing strategies for, you know, things that can be adapted and used that might be, uh, might be helpful. And, and that was a unique situation because slavery and the, the, the history of slavery and the impact of slavery in a country, whereas uh, coming from a country where uh, slavery was not uh, a specific issue per se, and now coming with that whole uh, impact on a country of colonialism, slavery and, and exploitation. So that is a completely different perspective. And, and obviously, um, they kicked out the uh, the colonialists and uh, they, they're striving and fighting for their independence. And still to this day, even 100 plus years later, certain issues still haven't been resolved yet, trying to self-determine. So it seems like the thread uh, from these experiences from uh, Mauritania, from Iraq to Haiti is even in spite of uh, insane odds and, and crazy circumstances, resilience uh, of the people. And mm -hmm. probably, like you said, a compassion, even a sense of humor in spite of, uh, in spite of really difficult, uh, tense circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Please go ahead. Nope, I don't, I don't have anything else to say to that. You've, you've, you've worded it well. And, and then the next stage, what was the next country you went to thereafter, after Haiti? I skipped uh, three months in Pakistan. Oh, there we go. There we go, Pakistan. This is something that we can uh, spend time in That's Pakistan. Right. So let's talk Speaking about Speaking of amazing food um, yeah, and art and, uh, and people. Uh, yeah, so three months there working on a, a program for uh, training women to be candidates in elections. Um, so that was a really great experience. I was in Islamabad and due to security, not able to travel very much. Um, but I did make it to Karachi for a uh, meeting with some folks. Um, so, but it was a really incredible experience. Again, um, such amazing, smart people that uh, were open to helping me out, helping me to understand where we were and uh, the you know differences. Every country I was in, uh, really unique, obviously unique cultures, unique um, issues that they were facing and um, the solutions, sometimes some of them the same, always about bringing people together to be talking and finding consensus and, um, making decisions amongst themselves. Forget about the international community. Um, it's all needs to be done 
internally by the, the people who the decisions are gonna impact. And as you saw in Pakistan, very complex because Karachi and Sindh, different culture, different language, different tradition, different cuisine, Islamabad different, Punjab is different, Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, different racial, religious, cultural, socioeconomic, caste kind of issues. And there, it's not a monolith in any way. It's it, They're very layered and complex. And did you get a sense, and because a lot of people, when they think of Pakistan, they think uh, a lot of negative things, but but obviously, uh, you know, people think of fundamentalism, but I find Pakistan to be a very secular country, like a, very in the sense that the people are are very broad-minded and uh, very, uh, you know, so so I think there's a perception to label one country, oh, they're all like this, but it's it's actually, I would say secular liberal is is, is more the majority rather than fundamentalist, conservative, oppressive, which is what what some, at least uh, my perception, people have uh, of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. I think that we can say that of anywhere though, right? Like we yeah. can say that of Canada, you know, you've got uh, some people on one extreme and you've got other people on the other extreme and and then you've got everybody in the middle or on, on the, the edges of those. So it's, um, I'm fortunate, and I think if we want to talk about Islamophobia, um, that it's those um, people on the extremes that for somehow, uh, for whatever reason, uh, those, those folks that get in the media, and it's those... Uh, that hijack a narrative of the majority. So a tiny, uh, it's like the Ku Klux Klan somehow representing all Christians, That's which right. is categorically not true. And, yeah. and and if ISIS or these extremists that are doing their thing, it's it's a tiny fraction, yet for whatever reason, there's either a media bias or uh, other biases that are out there that, that try and conflate the majority with a tiny fraction of extremists. Yeah. And, and Is it is it they're trying to grab head, you know, get people to read? They want the sensational headlines. Nobody wants to read about the nice uh, event that happened with uh, some multi-faith event that happened in Islamabad one day. What they want to read about is what's happening with the the violence and the Taliban or whatever is going on. That that's I I, I it's ignorance for sure. I think the media. There's a lot of room for the media to be um, learning and better understanding the issues uh, that they may be covering when it comes to international politics or it comes to religion. And, and uh, one thing I learned, and I'm sure maybe you may agree, is that I used to get a preconceived notion of a country and a people by the newspaper or something I saw in the news. And then when I'd go, I was like, it's not like that at all. It's like whatever I was being fed in newspaper articles, magazine articles, news, uh, news kind of documentaries, it, it was completely different. different. Okay, let me tell you a story. Uh, in Mauritania, there was an Israeli embassy uh, while I was there. They, they got, uh, anyway, uh, and uh, beside the Israeli embassy, like outside of, but, but um, beside it uh, was a bar. And there were not, you, um, Mauritania was a dry country. So yeah. though there were bars when, at the time when I was there, they weren't legal. Uh, so one night, um, some, some, a car drove up and there was three people hopped out and they threw a hand grenade over the fence and they shot up the front door and nobody was hurt, thank goodness. 
Um, but it was an attack on the bar. Yeah. And so in the morning, uh, in the media, the uh, Israeli ambassador says we were attacked by Al Qaeda, yeah. and then or the the uh, the Sahel version of Al Qaeda, yeah. and and then Al Qaeda says we attacked the Israeli embassy. <laughs> like wait a minute, you guys, nobody did either of those things. It was completely yeah. so using whatever you know, using the media, uh, media taking it up without um, actually doing the research and whatever the political angles are that people are using to get their version of the truth out um dangerous stuff very dangerous and and that's the media and people using threads of the truth to make a completely different reality which a former president of the united states did very very well uh, okay. a completely distorted perception of what is real what's not real so now getting to what's real for for us in our context in Canada. And uh, so uh, your family, um, different background from Europe, uh, my family, different background from India, Pakistan. And then there's Canadians from Korea, from China, from Japan, from uh, uh, all over the world. And uh, I, I will get this. So although I proud Canadian born in Canada, raised in Canada, but whenever I travel or even within Canada, uh, people ask me, where are you from? And I go, I'm from Canada. And they go, no, no, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Canada. So uh, even from a perception, like, so although uh, my skin color, my perception, possibly the beard, religion, name is different from what somebody would perceive a Canadian to look like. Mm -hmm. So I always find it amusing. I'm learning to be more amused rather than offended that uh, wherever I go, Muslim country, non-Muslim country, I always get this question, where are you from? And then also whenever I do say I'm from Canada, there's always a question, no, no, seriously, where are you from? So mm -hmm. it's like a, 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 this kind of um, thing to justify, you know, I am Canadian, third generation, I love the or fourth generation, and uh, I love the country, but I do appreciate and respect my heritage and my roots. So it, it, it's both of that. Now, getting to the origin and history and how resilience BC came to being in this time and age where I, you know, racism is actually increasing. It's not decreasing. It, 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 we, I, I think maybe under the Obama administration, maybe we thought it was getting better, but with social media, with other issues at stake, uh, racism is getting worse and worse and worse, exacerbated by online disinformation and maybe foreign actors working to divide communities even further on uh, different uh, divisive issues. Mm -hmm. So getting to this vision for Resilience BC. And I got to commend the work that you and your team have done because it is comprehensive. It is ambitious. It is, uh, you know, again, we're here and we're grateful that uh, phone calls that we made to government that weren't really returned years ago are, are now being returned and we're part of the process. So let's talk about how we got to here with Resilience BC. So I, I agree that, uh, I mean, that the government uh, of the day has seized this as a priority and it's unprecedented the support that they're giving. They have the first time that there's been a parliamentary secretary that's responsible for anti-racism initiatives. They're bringing in anti-racism legislation. They are gonna be uh, bringing in legislation to be collecting race-based data that will allow for understanding more deeply the, the impact of racism in the country. Um, or sorry, in the province. Um, 
And then they funded uh, the Resilience BC uh, hub, which supports um, a network of 36 organizations around the province that are also funded by the province um, to be doing anti-racism work in their communities. So, um, and, then, and then these uh, conveners that have been brought on um, to be connecting members of the, their communities, whether it be um, black communities, Asian, um, and then the faith-based organizations, um, it's really an important uh, initiatives that are taking place right now. And I'm, I'm really proud of the government for the work they're doing and honored to have an opportunity to be um, working on these issues with you uh, and with um, the network members and then the my really great colleagues that I have we've done over the last year uh, put in place a number of different programs uh, to be supporting the network members spend time uh, we have monthly meetings and we've been doing some workshops and uh, just helping to bring the network members together to be sharing their um, experiences and what lessons they've learned. Uh, we're not more in taking initiatives in their communities. So um, lots, lots and lots of lessons being learned. And, and with the spokes, because we've got Chinese Canadians, uh, Korean Canadians, we've got Muslims come from every uh, walk of life, 30% of Muslims are, are Black uh, uh, Muslims from Africa as well. So, and then we have Asian, Indonesian, Malaysian, Filipino, and uh, in Thailand, and, uh, and even mainland China, there's 100 million Muslims in mainland China. So, so many different intersections of race and religion and same with the Christian community, many different races and religion and, and also even in the Jewish community, there's uh, the Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews and African Jews. So we, we even though the religion is the same or similar, but the race and the intersection of, of religion comes together uh, uh, frequently. Um, so now in this context with the spokes, uh, how did you reach out and how did uh, how did you assemble the spokes and get these teams so your your current team the the core team of resilience bc and then from that core team bring the spokes together so the we use the very ingenious tool called survey monkey fantastic <laughs> yep uh and we have been we doing we're really not doing anything without um consulting with the network members because we work for them uh so wanting to understand what is what are your priorities? What are your challenges? Um, and what can we be doing uh, to be of some kind of assistance? Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, each community, as you know, each community is so different, and um, opportunities in each community to be uh, talking about racism, to be engaging with different uh, communities. Uh, it varies. Lower mainland is very different from Dawson Creek, different from um, Cowichan Valley. So uh, it's, that's the, um, the, really the, the beauty of the program is that we're able to be tailoring the support that we're offering to what they need. And, and we're using these survey monkeys and, and uh, we have uh, lots of uh, Zoom calls uh, to be listening to what people are looking for and then responding to that. And, and I, I just want, I want to add that something that's a priority for the hub um, is to be taking a, um, a decolonized approach to our work 
and ensuring that um, we're making sure that the, everybody's kind of on the same page on that. So we've had a number of different workshops uh, and sessions um, to, to be um, talking about uh, engaging with uh, Indigenous communities, First Nations in British Columbia, to be able to um, under make sure everybody's I got a real clear understanding of the issues that are faced um, by Indigenous people in British Columbia and what the challenges are and how to be um, working towards ensuring that their communities um, are inclusive and uh, that the services are being provided equally to everyone, including the First Nations population. And you brought up a great point. And, and I, again, the First Nations community is very diverse. Languages are, are different, cultures are different, the cuisine is different. And, and so whether it's the Musqueam, the Squamish, the Salutooth, and we had a, a great conversation with the Salutooth Nation, one of their representatives. And, uh, and we were just talking about how we talk about God. And in Muslims, we say Allah. And, and I said, you know, in the books that I read growing up, uh, the Great Spirit, and uh, so the Salutooth, they don't say the Great Spirit. They said that uh, a lot of the Eastern uh, tribes say the Great Spirit. We call it. We we say the Creator, and mm -hmm. so even from a religious standpoint. So um, uh, one of the members of the Lilouette Nation, Norm Leach, uh, we we're talking about uh, um, uh, how how talking about the ancestors of, of First Nations, where they talk about the mountains and the trees being ancestors because it's like when we die we're buried we decompose we become food for the animals compost you know birds what have you so that even viewing the earth as family uh, that was a powerful distinction and uh, yeah and and uh, and even salmon we we talked to mla uh, adam olson and from the sartlet nation he, he talked about how uh, from human beings to salmon and how that mythology comes together and uh, and how we are part of the fish and the fish are part of us and so that holistic connection and then the other thing norm leach brought up was indigenous people didn't separate race and religion it's like we're one like we're not first nations and then we have this religion it was our religion and identity and race are the same thing and so that was something and uh, norm was talking about you know we haven't worked on getting religious status because our ethnic identity and religious identity were the same but getting uh charitable status for religion was something that he thought was something they could work towards because they're talked about in a racialized sense but maybe not in a religious sense from having their own kind of um, uh, tax status regarding charitable issues for, for, for religious organizations. So just with those conversations, it, we got to understand nuances just with a few uh, discussions that we've had. And so uh, decolonization and our First Nations that, that were, were on their land. Um, so one thing that we, we understood, so my father, or sorry, my uncles, they, they started the first mosque in British Columbia in 1959. So 1959, it's on West 8th near Canby. And wow. yeah, and so Yusuf, uh, our colleague on Islam Unraveled, like one thing about having a mosque, it has to be on land that you own. And if it's stolen land, there's a dubious kind of understanding of what is the status of your mosque if it's on land that you don't own. And so, uh, so that was a, a key distinction. So doing our part 
as Muslims that, you know, although my family's been here for four generations, but the First Nations have been here for millennia. So if we're doing our part, at least in our context as Muslims, to invite our First Nations uh, brothers and sisters to come to our mosque, vice versa, visit their communities, break bread. And, uh, and actually, this is another distinction the Salah Tooth Nation brought up. They say the most intimate things, the second most intimate thing uh, a person can do with one another is to eat with one another. And so, so that was another thing. So to break bread, to sit with one another as part of a cultural, spiritual, religious tradition. And so these are things as the, the convener we're, we're attempting to do for faith-based communities. And, and we're looking at our First Nations faith-based community as their First Nations and their faith and to connect on that level. That's fantastic. That's going to be of huge value uh, to when you start reaching out to the other communities to be sharing that information. And uh, so it's helping to cross over those those boundaries of where people don't see there's any commonality. Really yeah. interesting work. And you brought up a survey monkey and, and part of what Yusuf and I discussed uh, with, uh, with uh, other members of uh, uh, the ministry is... Uh, uh, what we heard reports. So not just metrics of how many people we met, how many communities we met, but what did we hear? Mm -hmm. What did we hear? And uh, what did we understand? Just like what we discussed now. So we're, we're going to work to formalize that so we can provide it to uh, Resilience BC. So all the communities we meet with. So if there's questions, uh, we got some questions, but if there's any comprehensive list of questions that Resilience BC would like answered from all these uh, multiple communities, uh, please send it over and we're happy to, to, to kind of get as much uh, information back as possible. Interesting. That's great. Thank you. And now we're just near the end of the hour. So now this is cliche, but the youth is our future. And uh, one of the recommendations we made on this call earlier today with the uh, Parliamentary Secretary uh, Rachna Singh was a youth uh, committee or advisory for this upcoming anti-racism legislation because what's different, uh, I'm in my mid forties and uh, I understand the world is in a certain way, but I, I, I wasn't born into the internet generation, video gaming, uh, online, everything. And so that perspective, I, I don't necessarily have. And because after we go, uh, these young folks are gonna be taking over that, uh, that to have them be part of the, the, the consultative table because uh, teenagers, elementary school students, high school students, university students have a perspective we don't have. And, mm -hmm. uh, and in that concept that uh, in, in leaving our, our future generations with uh, contribution, not just tokenized contribution, but being part of the process. Because if we look at even Greta Thunberg or Malala Yousafzai, mm -hmm. young That's people right. are, are very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, uh, so we have a website <laughs> that um, I know is not something, uh, sort of an old fashioned tool now, I think. Um, but so after getting the website up, we'll be moving to social media. And I think that's where, um, that's where we'll be able to have the, the greatest influence with getting the message out. Um, the, the objective here is to be normalizing discussion about racism, that this is something that we need to talk about. The, what's happened with COVID, um, um, the anti-Asian racism that was uncovered, uh, you know, all of, all of this racism has been there all along, but really what has happened is that the, the light has been shone on it. 
And we're now, and I'll have an opportunity here to be talking about what's under that dirty rock, if you wanna say, um, that's been hiding under there all this time and, um, and normalizing the discussion. Uh, so for white people who thought that this was a very happy country and everybody was getting along to um, people, um, other, other communities where um, they maybe have been uh, victims of racism, but haven't wanted to talk about it before shame or feeling uh, uncomfortable talking about it. So for whatever, whoever you are, um, to be able to understand that it's an important, it's an important part of our society that we need to talk about. It's a problem that we have and you can't solve it if we don't talk about it. So the social media, will be um, really about trying to, you know, help with all the other amazing people that are working on anti-racism initiatives right now um, to be helping to normalize that discussion, drive people to where they can get more information, where they can learn more about the impact of racism. Uh, lots of tools on our website about um, things you can be reading, watching, listening to, uh, to be able to uh, learn how to become an ally uh, to be able to be fighting against racism in your own community and then connecting with the Resilience BC member where you're living. So the website is uh, resiliencebc.ca and um, it's got uh, a lot of great tools. But again, you're, you're talking about youth. And so um, we're uh, going to be using social media to be, to be reaching out. Great. And, and the last thing uh, we're planning uh, after the lockdown is our anti-racism roadshow where physically Yusuf and myself uh we do like road, road trips but uh to physically go to the the spokes and and do programs and even uh an idea we have called the anti-racism happy hour where we buy coffee and tea for folks at a local cafe and just have a you know members of the black community jewish community of those uh different uh localities and just kind of meaningfully communicate with people that have never met Muslims or Jewish people or black people or First Nations people and just do it in a very simple, simple, straightforward, old fashioned, thousands of year old traditions of sitting down and having tea and breaking bread with somebody. Really nice. Sounds great. Post COVID. I'm all for it. Thank you so much, uh, Jane Hertig, the Director, Resilience BC. Thank you again for your great work and looking forward to keeping our work together and uh, improving upon what we're doing today. Thank you for the invitation. Great, great uh, opportunity to talk with you. Thank you.